0: Climbing Gold is a production of duct tape and beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration.
1: I usually don't sign up for something I don't think I can do. I waited for a long time to try to bolt until I knew I was ready, until I had done enough hard routes that I felt prepared enough to try it. And enough hard routes at Smith Rock, especially.
0: This is climber and photographer Tara Kirshner. Tara's also a filmmaker. I also love the fact that to bolt
2: or not to be keeps showing up coincidentally. You might remember JB Trebow, Frenchman, first 514 in America. No woman would ever climb 514. I wonder if when he said that he would realize that he would be continually lampooned on some podcast 30 years later <laughs> anyway i feel like i'm repeating myself will you describe to bolt or not to be
1: if you when you look up at to bolts or not to be you look you feel like you're looking up and i'm going to use page clausen's words here at a giant blank parking lot that's turned up on its side and it's Climbs in an incredibly stressful way. You feel like you're climbing the features that might be on a parking lot. In fact, the features on a parking lot might be bigger than the features you're climbing onto bolt. You know, you tie in and you start climbing. And from the moment you start until the probably the 11th or 12th bolt, you are stressed. <laughs> unless, unless you're French. And then I think you're just climbing it very gracefully. And it's being, you know, it's easy. <laughs> So I grew up in Bend, Oregon, and I was going to Smith Rock my whole life, but I didn't climb.
0: Smith Rock State Park is in Oregon, and it's a classic sport climbing area. It's really the, it was the birth of sport climbing in America. And Tara grew up going to Smith even before she was a climber.
1: Smith Rock is just this incredible landscape with this river running through it. And I always thought of it as, um, or in my younger days, wrote like, you know, angsty teenage poetry about it being like, a bunch of cardboard cutouts that are up against the sky. And I only say that because the volcanic tuff that makes up the rock that you climb on there is really interesting looking and it creates all these like very distinct ridgelines and it's just very aesthetic.
2: When she was 17, some friends took her to the local climbing gym and she got hooked.
1: I had never been into sports before and definitely was pretty unathletic in general. I like to joke that I'm like a house cat, you know, that you pick up in the middle and they kind of just sag on both sides. It's like I'm not a super athletic built person. So climbing was the perfect sport for me because it didn't, you know, if you have good technique, it doesn't necessarily require like big biceps.
2: Climbing connected Tara to her body, but there was also something deeper than the athleticism.
1: I also feel like climbing brought me to a place where I can appreciate the land in like a totally different way and, and then reconnecting with an indigenous identity. So I've always been pretty connected to my like identity as like a mixed race, native on my dad's side, white on my mom's side person. And it's always been a big part of my identity growing up. The intersection of like tribes and public lands and outdoor re- recreation is undeniably intertwined, and I can see that very clearly now. But when I was growing up, I didn't see that as clearly. Partly because it was just kind of like something we didn't talk about. Because part of it made my, my dad sad. It seemed like
2: her father was Nez Pierce, one of the most prominent tribes in Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. But he grew up in an adopted household. And talking about that side of their family story was difficult. As Tara excelled in both climbing and photography, she began her own process of learning about Native cultures. A few years ago, a group called Natives Outdoors popped up on Instagram, and Tara got interested, reached out, to offer her photos for their website, and connected with the founder, Len Nesifer, a passionate skier, mountain biker, and climber, as well as a scholar, writer, and businessman. Their collaboration sparked a period of learning for Tara. In between taking some of the most beautiful and rad climbing images out there, Tara also applied her skills as a photographer and filmmaker to working on projects focused on the experiences of Native Americans. For National Geographic, she covered the Navajo Nation's COVID response, the fight by the Apache to save Oak Flat in Arizona from copper mining, and recorded some of the traditional stories of the Native peoples of Central Oregon.
1: I think that one really cool thing that I've started to that that I personally really love are the indigenous creation stories that exist for a lot of places that we call state or national parks, like Yosemite and Smith Rock. I'll use Smith Rock as an example because it's one of my favorites.
2: Smith Rock, depending on what historical thread you tug on, is named after John Smith, who either earned the naming by tripping and falling off one of the cliffs, or he threw himself to his death rather than be captured by a band of northern Paiute during a skirmish with the U.S. Army, or maybe he was just the county's first sheriff unknown. But the history it runs deeper than that.
1: The indigenous creation story it calls it Animal Village. And there's an incredible story that that I'll, I'll let you uh, read the story, but because I feel like it's important that these stories come straight from the source of the elders. And I think that if you're like recreating in these places and climbing in these places, it's really powerful to learn these creation stories, because you learn that the relationship that Indigenous people had with the land came far before the verbiage of Smith Rock and like came far before rock climbing, came far before to bolt or not to be, or like whatever you want to think of when you think of Smith Rock. It first was this incredibly powerful relationship that the Indigenous people had to the land. So I think that's a really cool thing or practice or exercise for climbers is to look at those creation stories and learn more about the places that they're recreating in it's i think it's a lot more meaningful than just like doing a land acknowledgement in your instagram post or something
2: today tara looks at and experiences the place she grew up visiting and developed as a climber in a different way
1: you know i'm sure that it wasn't specifically climbing but i can't help but think of like what were they thinking standing under like those huge dinner plate walls and how we as climbers are drawn to those because they're so significant looking. And now you have like, you know, the way that native people are experiencing landscape has changed even more. If you look at climbers, native climbers, which is like not very many, but they're there and it's growing with representation, but like that's a different way for native people to experience landscape.
0: Today, in Chapter 9, we talk to Aaron Mike and Len Nesifer about bringing two communities who are often at odds and struggling to understand each other closer together at a time when it might be more important than ever. We dive into the sometimes troubling relationship between climbers and tribes, discover hope
2: for the future, and find out just because it's there doesn't always mean we should climb
0: it. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitzgehall. This is Climbing Gold.
3: Chapter 9, Untelling the Story. Yeah, yeah, I've I've always been a climber. I actually lived on and off the Navajo Nation as a kid. Family in Monument Valley. And uh, pretty much my first experiences were pretty much revolved around hunting for lost arches in in the backcountry around Monument Valley. And whether that be just scampering around on, you know, small boulders or climbing kind of big rounded features, you know, exploring
0: areas and ruins and places that my, my family have kind of come from. This is Aaron Mike, climber, guide, athlete, and Native Lands coordinator at the Access Fund. Do a lot of uh, work in in advocacy, intersection of
3: tribal interests and, and public lands. My first contact with rock climbing was actually with my grandfather hunting for A specific arch in a kind of like Monument Valley area. I was traveling down one kind of corridor of sandstone and left my grandpa in another and we call him, uh, my, my Che, the Navajo. And I go back to the original canyon that I left him in and couldn't find him until I looked up in a chimney. And he was about 60 feet off the ground, jeans and just new balance shoes, chimneying his way up to get a better view to see if we can, if we could find the arch from on top of the tables. That was kind of the first time I saw it. And, you know, I'd come to find out later that back in the early 70s, my grandfather had taken... An actual rock climbing course at Fort Lewis University in Colorado and kind of learned basics and, and techniques from that class. Definitely wasn't the safest approach to it, <laughs> but definitely kind of lit my fire for being able to travel across land that way and, and, and you know, get on top of things to have a better vantage point.
2: After those experiences with his grandfather, Aaron picked up rock climbing
3: in Tucson with his friends there. Being so far away from Navajo Nation and kind of where I drew a lot of my identity, climbing kind of took me back to that in terms of connecting with my surroundings and, you know, having a deeper feeling towards the desert in, in Tucson, Arizona. And uh, it immediately hooked me for that reason. I felt like there was a new way to to express myself and to be in something involved in something that's bigger than me. What are the moments for you in your climbing career that really stand out? So always, you know, climbing these really big features in you know, say the Alpine, like the the Diamond on Longs Peak, Half Dome. Uh, Half Dome was really awesome to be on top of. It was just feeling of you know, fear and knowing that you're in a place that is much bigger than you and more powerful than you, you know, the ones that stick out in my mind are probably the bigger ones that I've climbed in the mountains. I guess that's due to my culture. We have four sacred mountains in in the areas and, you know, a lot of our, you know, our traditional medicine men are tasked with going to to these specific mountains and spending time with them and collecting mountain tobacco in certain areas to be able to bring home and provide ceremony for members of the community that need it.
4: My is Len Nassifer. I am a member of the Navajo Nation like from a few different places, but home is Salie, Arizona.
2: As we mentioned earlier, Len founded Natives Outdoors, He's a close friend and regular climbing partner of Aaron's.
4: There's a lot of evidence of Native peoples using climbing. And I think that's been, you know, I think in my community, I've been trying to raise a lot more awareness to is like, this is just a way of moving through landscapes that's, you know, inherent to who we are. Climbing is pretty like, you know, in, in terms of our part of the world, it's something that's been used historically by, you know, the ancestral Puebloans, you know, had yucca ropes and putting sticks into cracks and like using them as ladders.
2: Since founding Natives Outdoors, Len has increasingly shouldered the role of Connector, highlighting and spotlighting Native culture, athletes, and history to a greater outdoor world, and simultaneously explaining those outdoor pursuits to an older generation of Navajo who know little about climbing, and what they do is grounds for a healthy distrust.
4: For a huge part of my life, it was something I had to hide from my family because we lived right beneath Shiprock. And just hearing the anger of my family of just, one, it was folks coming on the res without permission and doing things that weren't exactly clear, you know, it just felt kind of like a further assault on, you know, basically the decades of efforts that the tribe has, you know, tribes and native people had fought for to basically have some sort of governing authority over their lands. I would love to be able to climb back home on the res and like, you know, be able to spend time there and like, think about that as a place that I would just go and recreate and just, go back home, but because of, you know, some guys' fuck-ups in the 60s and 70s, I can't do that.
0: After the break, we find out why the Navajo Nation banned climbing.
2: We take apart the version of history we've been using to justify continued climbing on Navajo lands.
0: I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete tested and expedition proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at Northface.com. I first found Coros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Coros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-pitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. The Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. (laughs) I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. <laughs> if you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing training and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to koros.com and use the code Gold to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. Alex, do you know who David Brower is? I don't know that much about David Brower, except that he's sort of a renowned conservationist and you know founded the, the Sierra Club. Right. He was the first executive director of the Sierra Club. Basically,
2: he was arguably one of the most important figures in the American environmental movement. He really grew the Sierra Club into this political force. But before he became this icon of environmentalism, Brower was amongst the best climbers in the country. He pioneered more than 70 major first ascents in the 1920s and 30s. By the 1930s, climbers had recorded the first documented summits of North America's most iconic peaks. Mount Rainier, Whitney, the Colorado 14ers, Grand Teton, all those sort of classics. Uh, in 1913, Walter Harper, a native Alaskan, um, became the first person to reach the summit of Denali. So climbers, they're starting to look for things that aren't necessarily the biggest, but are more difficult. The sport. It's really in this transition from mountaineering into climbing. And suddenly climbers are talking about the last great problems. They they start to solve them. Routes like Liberty Ridge on Mount Rainier, which was completed in 1935. Except for one. Uh, climbers keep failing on this incredible peak in the northwestern
0: New Mexico desert. Shiprock. Shiprock is this beautiful mountain in New Mexico. It's really striking. It really sticks out of the landscape in an impressive way. And it was included in the 50 classic climbs in North America uh, when that was published in 1979, and uh, and the, that book became the tick list for traditional climbers. I mean, the, the name comes from the fact that it looks like a crazy ship just sticking out of the earth for climbers. It's
2: you know what they call the the last great problem, but for the Navajo Shiprock was something very different.
4: You know, for the Navajo people, my people, it's a place that is sort of a central centerpiece of our of our creation story. It's where. The hero twins slayed a giant bird. You know, whether that rock itself is the bird or if the bird lived on it, is, depends on who you're talking to. But it's a sacred place. It's a place that ceremonies happen. It's a place that, you know, is kind of held in reverence. In
2: 1939, David Brower and three other climbers make the first ascent of Shiprock. In the process, they do something that has never been done in North America. They place bolts. And through the following decade, Shiprock became a sought-after objective.
4: There's, I think, some discussion that it was unclimbable, you know, but you know, the the use of of bolts really changed that because you know it's a big sort of a you know volcanic. It's like there's very few cracks and very few places for natural protection, and so you know the bolts, the addition of bolts on this particular route, allowed for the safe ascent and descent off this peak. What happened was. You know, in the '60s and '70s, is that there was more and more people climbing Shiprock, and I think there was like a two or three, one fatality, one pretty serious fall, and then I think maybe another. But you know, at that time, it was you know fairly challenging and technical to do the rescue, and you know they're, they're calling in Mountaineer, the Los Alamos mountaineers or whoever American Alpine Club chapter and doing the rescue on Shiprock, rock and, you know, it was just, it was horrifying to a lot of community members because, you know, it, was, it came out of nowhere, a lot of instances, and a lot of instances, a lot of the climbers were kind of trying to fly underneath the radar to like not draw too much attention. But, you know, once someone dies or someone gets seriously hurt, it definitely kind of brings a lot of attention. And there had been some grumblings and frustrations about the use of bolts because it was sort of these, uh, Irreparable, de- or irreparable harm happening to the rock.
2: Shiprock wasn't the only climbing attraction on Navajo lands. There was Canyon de Chez Spider Rock, where Navajo tradition believed that the spider woman first wove the universe and brought weaving to the Navajo lived. And there was also, of course, Monument Valley.
0: Monument Valley is maybe one of the most iconic desert landscapes in in the U.S., or I suppose in this case in the Navajo Nation. But, you know, I mean, it really... Almost everybody has seen Monument Valley because it's been used as a backdrop of so many old Westerns and so many old uh, films in the US that, you know, I mean, the most striking parts of the landscape in Monument Valley have been seen in all kinds of, of you know, mainstream media uh, performances. It is sort of the quintessential vision of the American West. You know, you see it and it feels both familiar and incredibly exotic.
2: Through the 1950s and 60s, desert climbing blossomed across the southwest, and Navajo lands with its incredible spires was part of the draw. Some sought permission, either from the Navajo government or the local family who held the grazing rights beneath the given formation, but many just did what they pleased. With the accidents on Shiprock, the growing use of bolts, and slings left behind, the leaders of Navajo Nation had had enough.
4: One of the things that began occurring, though, around the time of these accidents is that this was like in the late 60s, early 70s, when when there was a resurgence of the American Indian movement. And, you know, a lot of tribal nations trying to reassert themselves and their governance and like what they were, you know, basically trying to, you know, have capable governing institutions and having, you know, the force of law on tribal land. And, you know, there was... That happened on the Navajo Nation as well, and, and they saw this as, you know, an op- well, not as an opportunity, but something that was occurring, but also an opportunity for them to exert their leverage. And so the Navajo Nation Parks and Rec Department, who oversees basically all rangeland on the Navajo Nation, just issued a blanket ban for climbing on the Navajo Nation in 1971.
2: May 12th, 1971, a letter to rock climbers. Many requests come from the Navajo tribe for permission to climb one or more monoliths on the reservation. It is the policy of the tribe to prohibit anyone from climbing any of these monoliths, Shiprock, Rainbow Bridge, the totem pole, Spider Rock, and any and all others. A practical and easy understandable reason is the nature of the rocks themselves, which cannot withstand the unnecessary attrition to any degree. This has been argued by various would-be climbers, but the tribe is making no exceptions. A second reason, and one that admits of no argument, is that the monoliths of the Navajo Reservation are considered sacred places. To climb them is to profane them. That's a letter that Charles S. Damon, director of Navajo Parks and Recreation, sent to Steve Roper, who, at the time, edited the magazine Ascent. That letter was later published in the American Alpine Journal, which at that stage was read widely amongst the community. Damon's words are dead clear. The Navajo Nation is closed
0: to climbing. I don't know if you know, uh, I've climbed ship rock. So is is climbing Shiprock just fully illegal? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. Like,
2: how did you, like, why were you even on the reservation, Alex?
0: Well, so... We were in the midst of this mini expedition that we called Sufferfest 2, this bike tour that toured a bunch of classic desert towers. Cedar and I had spent three weeks sampling some of the best desert towers that we could find on our way down towards northern Arizona, where I was supporting a project through the Honolk Foundation, a solar energy access project, um, basically just providing solar panels on on the reservation. So while we were biking through the reservation, Cedar had sort of a friend of a friend or a contact who said that he he was sort of our in for for climbing some of the the formations that we passed, and you know we didn't really know anything about it, but he said that uh, that it was fine. He was from there, you know. He he knew the guy that owned the land or whatever. You know, basically all, all the things that we bike passed along the way, and, and we climbed several towers, and. You know, actually, I mean, I suppose maybe they're all illegal because they're all on the Navajo reservation. But, um, I mean, you're pulling up a topo for the route. You know, somebody's published something about it. It all seems pretty legit. Somebody tells you it is okay. You're like, that's that's what I want to hear. So I'll, I'll go have an adventure. It, it, all, it all seems fine right up until you realize it is actually forbidden. But, I mean, in our case, we didn't realize that until, you know, until just now. So that's what uh, 10 years later, basically.
2: Does it change the way, you like, feel about that trip at all
0: yeah i mean honestly a little bit it kind of makes me it makes me slightly sad you're like huh we i mean we thought we were doing such a cool thing i mean especially because you know i was funding a an energy access project on the the navajo lands and you know you feel like you're going there to do a good thing and you're making a cool film and and it all seems like you're you're trying to do your best but um but yeah sometimes you just don't know any better and you make mistakes i guess you know i mean i think it's easy to understand how mistakes get made, but obviously it's still up to an individual to make sure they're not making mistakes.
2: You know, frankly, I don't really find the fact that you made that mistake all that interesting. What I find interesting is is the reason or the history for why that mistake keeps happening. After the break, we dig in and find out what's really going on.
0: Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration, and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbinggold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Wood Barrel Bourbon Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I choose. They're offering new customers twenty percent off any purchase with the code Climbing Gold, or you can go to drsquatch.com/honald. Dr Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Alex, will you describe the very famous uh, climbing photo we're both looking at right now? There's an iconic photo of Fred Becky and Eric Bjornstad standing in Monument Valley holding up a sign that says, absolutely no rock climbing. And the two of them are covered in ropes and climbing equipment, you know, pitons and hammer. And they look totally haggard, like as if they've just climbed the biggest mountain on earth. And it looks like they stole the sign in the picture because, I mean, actually, you know, you can see brackets on the sign, like it's meant to be hung somewhere and they're just holding it. It's like they, they stole the sign, they climbed the mountain and they just absolutely do not care. And, you know, I mean, I guess that's kind of a testament to climbing in the 70s when, you know, really felt counter-cultural and just all about breaking the rules. But it's also, you know, blatantly disrespectful to the wishes of the Navajo Nation. And, you know, it's, it's almost like slightly embarrassing to see it now, but you know, it's, it really speaks to an earlier era in climbing. Bjornstad was particularly
2: active in the Southwest. He authored the first comprehensive guidebook for the desert, simply called Desert Rock. There would be four subsequent volumes. And today the original volume is a total collectible. Like it, it's kind of a Bible if you're a desert adventure climber.
4: But, you know, in that book, he detailed a bunch of climbs on the reservation and, and, You know, one of the things that he introduced in that thought was that he said, oh, well, it's a gray area. It's not exactly illegal. And, you know, you need to make a friend with a Navajo and that's how you do that. And that that sort of sentiment still exists today on, you know, Mountain Project and other things.
2: And before that, another book that we mentioned earlier, 50 Classic Climbs of North American gets published in 1979. The authors are Alan Steck and Steve Roper. Steve's the same person that the Navajo Nation sent the climbing ban letter to. Um, and they include shiprock. That's kind of messed up. It gets published by David Brower's Sierra Club, becomes a hit. Climbers from all around the world buy it. Um, and jokingly, people referred to it as the fifty crowded climbs. And then, do you know the the nineteen seventy seven? <laughs> I think you are. I think you will. The nineteen seventy seven film Iger sanction.
0: Of course, dude. You got. I have. Uh, I have two different uh, GQ movie review things where I review the Iger sanction.
2: <laughs> I forgot about that.
0: <laughs> no dude i'm so into i i I love the anchor sanction but i just reviewed it for this gq thing it was pretty classic
2: um that so the the scene you know the scene there is that obviously when they climb the totem pole part of the gig was that happened after the band or after the band and Mm -hmm. um i think part of the deal was that they had to basically pull all the anchors like they like clean the whole tower down it's a big thing and it's it's interesting too because a lot of climbers who have poached the tower since then have always sort of used that Iger sanction movie as this sort of like, well, if they'll allow Hollywood to shoot a car commercial. If they'll allow Clint Eastwood to climb this, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this, then like, why can't we? And mm-hmm. it's always fascinating to me. He's like, well, that's because they paid a shit ton of money to a sovereign nation to like allow it. And like, ultimately it's not, it's like, that's the Navajo Nation's choice. Like that's their elected leader's sure, right. choice of being like, well, we could, you know, take this and monetize and help pay for schools or whatever it is. And it's funny because I think that climbers use that as a way of just being like, you know, that scene of being like, well, if Clint Eastwood can do it, then why can't I?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, I think a big part of the the problem is that people just don't really think of the Navajo Nation as as a sovereign territory. You know, like climbers historically haven't treated it the way they would treat private property in other parts of the country because when you know when there's a private ranch in texas you don't go trespass across the ranch and and climb whatever you find you know and yet for some reason climbers have treated monument valley and and other parts of the navajo nation in a really different way you know they're kind of like well you know i'm sure we can get away with it i'm sure it's fine you know but if it's like somebody's farm in, in the Midwest, you, you don't just go trampling across their fields to do whatever you want just because they have rocks, you know. But, it, you know, when you're in wide open landscapes, it is easy to think that, that it's all okay because there's just nobody around. So the story we started sharing in the community back in
2: the 70s it kind of went something like this. Yeah, climbing in Monument Valley, it's illegal. But, you know, the rest of climbing is this kind of gray area it's it's sort of illegal, which is kind of a funny thing because not, not a lot in life is sort of illegal. But it sort of was like if you knew somebody or you knew a person who had grazing rights um, to the land, the formations it's on, and they give you permission, you're good to go. So as a climbing community, we've been passing along this story for generations now. And realistically, not a lot of people question it for a few reasons. One, they probably heard it from someone they respected who heard it from someone they respected. Uh, two uh, along the way, this alternate story of the climbing ban made it into our literature, into our guidebooks, and into our legends. Totally. Um, and three, if you know, we're going to be honest about this, the alternate story uh, facilitated a lot of cool experiences. So it was an easy story for a lot of us to tell.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And in practice, that meant we kept climbing. And the Navajo Nation is like. It's a big area, right? You know, and some climbers were caught and fined and their gear confiscated, but um, local law enforcement has more important needs to attend to.
4: You know, the tribe has full discretion on pursuing charges against people if they so choose. Like, you know, it's 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 if we keep playing with that fire, like eventually someone's going to get burned pretty hard that's one thing. And, you know, the other thing is like, well, if we want to continue the colonization of indigenous peoples and indigenous lands, like let's disrespect their laws.
3: There's no doubt that it's happening right now. And whenever I think about this topic, if I can, I'll I'll take it a few steps back. So in any industry or any sport, uh there's always, you know, kind of a, an evolution timeline, right? And obviously in climbing, we've had the technical evolution side, meaning, you know, gear is at a point right now where it's efficient, it's available, it's simple. We have practices in place for safe climbing. We have tactics. To prevent accidents and such, there's a lot of information available and documentation. So, on the technical side, climbing is it's it's not at a maturity level; it's almost there. The other side that doesn't necessarily increase with it, but is uh, an area where you know evolution is necessary, is the social side of climbing, the the communal side of climbing. And what I mean by that is the social responsibility that comes with it the ethics which we all decide as a community what's appropriate and what's not the people that are really trying their best to not disrespect any sovereignty and push on the nation side to try to get the banner reversed i think it makes it really hard for them to do so when a lot of other climbers are finding these loopholes to, to try to climb at all costs instead of reassessing and thinking, okay, well, this isn't, you know, maybe I shouldn't think about this as like a, a conquer, a first ascent, you know, kind of mentality, but what's good for the nation? Like, and what will help not only climbers, but this nation? you know, utilize potentially this sport for something or, you know, revisit this idea internally rather than have something from the outside come and say, can I climb here? I know you don't understand it, but I'm not going to get hurt and I know what I'm doing.
4: One of the things that we've been, Aaron and I have been working on, um, is we've been having conversations with the tribe about developing an outdoor rec economy on the Navajo nation. And you know I look at the res and I'm like, man this is it, you know we have public health challenges, of course, you know, and this could be a thing that could really just get kids excited about doing that. We also have had an economy that's been entirely based on extractive industries, and like climbing could be a part of that larger outdoor wreck puzzle that could help us think of a more sustainable way forward.
3: Navajo Nation, at least you know when I was living there a little bit ago, it seemed um, there are fewer, and fewer ways to connect with your cultural identity it could potentially be a cause for suicide rates and and crime rates is this like inability to connect with the land like we, we once were able to and you know so for example when I was growing up rock climbing wasn't isn't really a thing still and it seems like in terms of being able to understand what, you know, people that moved across the land and the significance of different landmarks and and have this really deep cultural knowledge of where we've come from and connect to that land, it, it seems like a sport like rock climbing could really do that. As I mean, of course, if you incorporate that, you know, traditional knowledge into it, One day, Aaron could see a scenario
2: where an individual or group could legally take Navajo kids out climbing on Navajo lands. In this last year, there was the smallest shift towards revisiting the ban, buried inside a formal Navajo government working document. It was the beginning of a proposal. A portion of the money that the tribe received through the CARE Act that Congress passed to help the economy and states rebound from the pandemic was set aside to explore the option of designated recreation sites including a few for rock climbing. And what happens on Navajo lands has bigger ramifications that extend across our country to other sovereign nations. Um, It has ramifications for conservation efforts and, yeah, for climbing too. Shiprock or totem pole climbing there is black and white it's illegal. They sit squarely inside the boundaries of Navajo Nation. But if you remember in the last chapter, almost 60% of climbing exists on public lands, national forests, national parks, BLM lands, and some of these climbing areas have deep cultural significance to tribes. At places like Bear's Lodge, which we call Devil's Tower, climbers have at times been at odds with the tribes. Federal land managers had to figure out solutions. In the case of Bear's Lodge, it was a voluntary climbing ban in June to accommodate the Lakota ceremonies. Climbers sued and lost. Cave Rock in Lake Tahoe, most culturally significant site in the Washoe culture. The debate grew so acrimonious during the land management plan, it ultimately led the Forest Service to pulling all the bolts. The Access Fund sued in early 2000 and lost. And other tribes took notice. The public took notice. Future iterations of the Access Fund had to work extremely hard to work past that decision to sue. And frankly put, we were missing the forest for the trees because it's more tenuous than I think we realize. Whether or not you
3: have the legal right to climb there, does that actually mean that you you should climb there? And is that something that, you know, is that something, where do we want to answer that? Or how do we want to answer that as a community, as a climbing community?
2: Last year, In Australia, after relationships between Aboriginal groups, climbers,
0: and park authorities disintegrated, climbing was banned widely in the Grampians. For Australians to have the Grampians closed is a lot like having Yosemite closed to climbing. I mean, uh, before I went to the Grampians, someone described it to me as the best rock on Earth. I was like, really? Like, we'll see. And then I went climbing the Grampians and I was like, you know what? This might be the best rock on Earth. It's incredible climbing and just incredible, incredible stone to touch. And yet now the, the bulk of of Grampians is closed to climbing. There are
2: ways, though, for climbers and tribal groups to work together. Ears National Monument is a good example. It's a situation where there's deep, deep cultural significance and there's incredible climbing. And we were able to bridge that gap and push towards the protection of that area.
4: A lot of tribes are sovereign nations. They have existing relationships with the federal government and federal laws that basically ensure that they are consulted with and have some sort of rights when it comes to the management of federal lands. And what we saw with Bears Ears is that tribes came together and basically leveraged that sort of status as rights holders to basically, um, you know, result in some pretty significant conservation gains. You know, it didn't have to happen that way. And, you know, climbing climbers and the climbing community could have easily been left out because of, you know, previous acts of desecration or, you know, disrespect of tribal laws and things that had happened in the past. You know, we're we're in a different time now and we have an opportunity to reassess. And I think it's good that we kind of understand the where it's brought us in good and bad ways, you know.
2: Building and strengthening relationships between climbers and tribal entities, it could end up playing a significant role in the future of conservation. Right now, in Oak Flat, Arizona, the Apache Access Fund and conservation groups are all challenging a giant copper mine that will destroy a piece of land sacred to the Apache, loved by climbers, and ecologically important. Our values can overlap. Look, people, climbers, they're going to make mistakes. That's human nature. It happens. And if we have solid working relationships, we can weather a few missteps. But the more we keep the false narrative in our climbing lore, in our publications, media alive, the more mistakes that are going to get made. I think there are some positives. Alan Steck, the author of 50 Classic Climbs, Um, has lobbied the community to remove Shiprock from the 50 Classics. On the other hand, even today, if you go to the Mountain Project landing page for Shiprock, the notes about access and legality are footnoted, easy to miss. And even if you click the footnotes they note, it's unclear if one can get permission to climb here from someone with the appropriate authority to legitimize climbing here. The fictional gray area story still exists. It's hard to untell a story, but this is one we should untell. You know, for me, I've always sort of seen climbing as a, as a vehicle for for learning. You know, it taught you about yourself. Um, it taught you about the people you climbed with a lot of times. And
0: <laughs> Yeah, depending on how hard the climbing is.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, it, it taught you, um, you know, a lot of times, like, I just, it taught me about the places I traveled to. Like, I would just learn, you know, because totally. I'd be fascinated about it. And it was just this, like, awesome thing of, like, I realized, like, this this took me to places that I wouldn't have seen if I just open a lonely planet. Um, you know, sometimes there's there's like things you run into. You're like, Oh shit. You know, that, that photo I thought that was so cool back then realistically speaks to like a somewhat darker truth or, you know, w- with you, like, you know, just even now being like, Oh, is ship rock legal? you're like, yeah, ship rocks illegal. Like, but there is like that reality of like, it's better to learn than not, you know? And, and I don't know whether mm-hmm, you agree mm-hmm. with any of that or like, there it's like you know I'd rather I'd rather make a mistake but then like learn learn from it than just never know I made a mistake
0: yeah I mean no I totally agree you know it's like yeah I mean what little I know about about the indigenous people of the U.S. I know because of climbing you know from from visiting their lands and you know but I mean really that's true globally as well it's like what what little I know about the world is from having gone to different places because of climbing and and meeting the folks there and learning about them. You know, it's like, I love climbing and I want to climb as much as I can all over the world. But if somebody tells me that I'm not allowed, then that's fine. I can go to the gym. You know, I can go to one of the the many crags that, that are allowed and, and have easy access. I mean, and that's fine. There's so much rock on earth. You know, if, if one particular spire or summit is sacred to the indigenous people, then by all means, uh, you know, find a different one that isn't sacred. It's like no, no climb is so important that it's worth trampling on, on you know, sovereign nations and, and you know, traditional beliefs. What do you say
3: to, to other climbers? So what I've told climbers in the past is don't be afraid to, to reach out and ask. If we don't have legit answers to those questions on what land you're on, what the history is, pressure local climbing organizations to be able to provide that information. And if not, you know, there are a lot of organizations out there, you know, like natives outdoors that will meet people where they're at in terms of education. There's a lot of work obviously being
2: done behind the scenes. Um, to connect these communities, but, but on a real base level, um, what do you say to like a climber who's out exploring the American West on a, on a road trip? Um, what do you think they should keep
4: in mind? Generally, it's just trying to have a light as light of an impact as you can in that landscape, treating it like, as if you're a guest in someone else's house, you know, you know, pretty simply it's just, you know, indigenous peoples were removed by force and it's a very traumatic series of events and native peoples are still connected to this place, but also still have a lot of resentment and anger when it comes to the fact that they don't have access to spending time and being in these places like they have historically. Climbing and other recreation has impacts and like understanding what those impacts are on the landscapes and how it could be a point of conflict and frustration for tribes. This place is a, uh, you know, a home for a lot of indigenous peoples. And there's things that are still there that, you know, people have a connection to
2: thanks to Tara Aaron and Len for sharing your perspectives and stories We really appreciate it for photos from today's show follow us on Instagram at climbinggold. gold the show is a production of duct tape then beer our host is Alex Honnold this episode was written and edited by Elizabeth Nakano and me, Fitz Cahall. Additional editing by Cordelia Zares, who also helped supply the soundtrack. Additional music by Brendan O'Connell and Amy Stolzenbach. Our executive producers for Duct Tape the Beer are Lisey Hendricks and Becca Gahal. for RxR Sports, Ben Endy and Jonathan Ratzick. We will be back next week for the final episode of Season 1, Crazy. Thanks for listening.